0: This is a podcast slidecast for the AP European History students at Bozeman High School. My name is Dave Butt. Uh, students, this podcast slidecast will uh, correspond to your readings in McKay, Hill, and Butler, chapter, specifically Chapter 13, Sections 5 and 6, the sections dealing with the Renaissance in the North and also political change caused by the Renaissance. First thing we want to do is take a look at some of the big essential questions that we're looking at. And these are sort of your macro questions that you want to keep in mind um, as far as. What exactly is going on inside of all of Europe and how this can relate across the eras? So these questions are, what are the political, social, economic, and intellectual foundations of modern Europe? How do those forces interact? How are nation states formed and developed and how do they regard the individual? How do the art and literature of the time express its fundamental values? What are the preoccupations and assumptions of any age? How do those express themselves in political, social, and economic movements? So as you read this section and as you listen to this podcast, keep in mind those major essential questions. Um, Remember that those are your overarching questions. Those are the things that you want to be looking at um, and answering as we go through this. And you'll see those again uh, from time to time. So let's go ahead and get started. The Renaissance in the North. Really, this is going to begin in the last quarter of the 15th century. Um, And you want to keep in mind that this is not in and of itself Um, an individual, or I'm sorry, this is not in and of itself uh, a separate movement from the Italian Renaissance. These guys, uh, the the painters, the artists, the writers that you're going to see instead of the Northern Renaissance, are going to get a lot of their ideas and a lot of their inspiration from the Italian Renaissance itself. So bear that in mind. this is again more Christian than the Italian Renaissance, it's going, stray, it's going to stress social reforms based on Christian ideals. In fact, Northerners had a program for a broad social reforms based on Christian values. They believe that Christian values, if used correctly, can actually reform society, um, and they're going to say that reason and not dogma as the fundamental for ethical way of as a foundation for an ethical way of life. So here we go: this reason and not dogma in this situation would be Catholic dogma. Um, keep that in mind that we've already seen some of that in the Italian Renaissance and now we particularly see it very well inside of the Northern Renaissance but again they're not rejecting any kind of Christian values it is just the fact that they use reason to understand their life um, and not just dogma. Um, they, they claim that you know one of the major tenets of the Northern Renaissance is basically that although human nature um, may have been corrupted by sin it, you know, fundamentally humans are good and they're going to claim that they're capable of um, improvement through education. Um, and so the Northern Renaissance is really going to be focused a lot more on education than we have seen in the Italian Renaissance and because of this that so we see education as being a major front for as to why um, the Italian or the, I'm sorry the Northern Renaissance actually takes off. Um, And then, again, more perfect world by combining the best elements of classical and Christian culture. So they they look at this as a way to combine both of these. Neither of them are separate by any means, um, and therefore they have to use both of them to actually understand them. Moving on to Renaissance writing. We'll talk more about the painting that you see on the left here before we go on to. But um, moving on to Renaissance writing. Uh, There's going to be three particularly three major renaissance writers that we're going to be northern renaissance writers that we're going to look at. The first one is going to be Thomas More. Um, his major work is going to be Utopia, and this is uh, otherwise known as Nowhere, if you look at it, and also, is, as More has pointed out, A Good Place, Which is No Place. Um, in this, he's going to basically claim that the goal of education is to develop rational faculties, which basically means the goal of education is going to be to develop rational ways of thinking. Um... One of the major components, Utopia, by the way, is if you want to go in and read Utopia, then um, it is basically a, his his story of a, a socialistic society based upon common ownership and social equality, um, where education, again, develops rational faculties. Um, one of the major prospects of it, one of the major components of that is that you, the goal of this is that all ownership is... Um, from the state and all ownership is based upon the community at large. So this is socialism at its truest. Um, He claims, Moore is going to claim, that private property really is basically going to create vice. He says that society's role as a protectorate of private property um, is flawed and thus the institution of private property is flawed. Um, And he says that reform of social institutions uh, that basically model the individual. That's what he's claiming, is that you need to reform the social institutions that are going to model the individual. In this situation, the social institutions would be like education for more. Um, next major guy we're to look at is Erasmus. Um, he is, the again, this emphasis on education as the key to moral and intellectual improvement and in inner Christianity, where not only is it to improve yourself morally, but it is to better to become a better Christian in this society, which is incredibly still, oh so much more important uh, to be a Christian than, than anything else that you can imagine. Um, his major tenet, Erasmus's major tenet, is that Christianity is not formalism, it's not special ceremonies or laws, but it is Christ, the life and what he said and what he did. Um, and he believes that to fully understand the way that the, the way Christ lived and what he did and what he said is that you actually have to be able to read the Bible himself, or yourself, and he's going to be a, bit av- a big advocate on, how, on, on getting the Bible translated into some modern languages, or into the, into the vernacular of the day. Um, Rabelais is a French writer, um, and he's really, again, the, the, that the institutions of a society are going to mold the individual, um, and that the education was a key to moral life. Now, institutions along society, these guys are saying that any institution, including education, also including the church, though, is going to have a massive impact on an individual's um, moral way of life. Um, his books, Gargantuan and Pentregal, really are spoofs on uh, French society. These are about a, it's like a comic romance between a giant Gargantuan uh, and his son and it's uh really you can you can view them as either um uh Rebus's way of sort of poking fun at the french education system or you can view it as simply just good humor but those are your three major renaissance nor- northern renaissance writers the most important of those probably being more and erasimus um more this this book utopia is going to sort of redefine exactly what how a society or not necessarily redefine but it's really going to contrast to how a society should be run um, in direct contrast, particularly to like, Machiavelli, who would not argue that socialism is a good way to to run a society. Um, moving along to sort of the art that we see inside the Renaissance. Uh, again, this art, much like the writing, much like the, the majority of the thought, this art is going to be more religious and less influenced by classical themes and motifs. Um, but these artists are equals to the artists that we see inside the Italian Renaissance. Uh, if you look at the painting on the right, which is a, which uh, is Van Eyck, the, the next one, the the next major person we're going to talk about here. But if you look at the painting on the right, you can see how how much they are very similar to the Italian Renaissance or Renaissance artists, um, particularly dealing with the detail, the level of detail you see inside of this picture. You can see uh, the ruffles in the woman's skirt. This painting, by the way, is Giovanni di Ardafini and his bride. Um, You can look at this really this realism and the attention to human personality um, that you see inside of this, and this is a common theme throughout Northern Renaissance art. This individuality, or this realism and human personality, again a component of individualism that we studied a little bit uh, a week ago. If you look at this painting, though, and and you can get online, you can actually look at some of the details, the closer details. One thing I'll draw your attention to is the mirror in the background. Um, If you get up close enough to that, you can actually see the reflection of the artists, of the artisan painting it, and also the reflection of the people. So imagine that detail and and just look at the painting and realize that this is an oil and oil on canvas is not an easy motif to work with. Um, But it realistic works with attention to human personality. Those are huge components of the Northern Renaissance style. and another, obviously, the major component is that it's more religious. Now, the paint on the right that you see is not necessarily any religious um, motifs, but it's definitely part of it. Jerome Bosch is another major Northern Renaissance artist that your book mentions, um, and really his paintings. And you can look at you can look at one of the pages in your book later on and it calls your attention to it. Um, but his his paintings really reflect the confusion and anguish um, that is associated with the end of the Middle Ages. And he he uses folk tales and he uses folklore to sort of Add grotesque sort of figures to his paintings and really, really starts to, you know, starts to question how society might be possibly breaking down because of the religious structure itself. And the end of this sort of hundred, you know, hundred some odd years of feudal orders really starting to break down. Uh, moving right along to the last section of your book, which is the or the last section of chapter thirteen, which is politics in the state in the Renaissance. Um, again, look at the dates on these things. Make sure you guys are paying attention to the fact that these dates are these dates are spanning hundreds of years. Um, this was from fourteen fifty to fifteen twenty one. You've got to keep those dates in mind and recognize the fact that as we go on throughout the, on throughout this history. Um, there's other things going on than just what this is dealing with. Do not read your book as if it's a linear fashion. Um, in about the 15th century, uh, rulers are going to begin the process of order through centralized, centralization of power. Um, strong monarchy for development of states. Uh, that is really the key, is that there is no strong monarchy, and that is the linchpin for the development of states in the Middle Ages. There's just not a, not, there's just not a strong monarchy, and so therefore you don't see the development of major nation-states don't really during and after the the hundred years war um, what this also does is the the through the centralization power the rulers actually managed to sort of quell the violence and disorder and really curb the authority of the nobles and this is going to be huge because during the feudal order the noble during the during the middle ages the feudal order really put the nobles and thus the aristocracy at sort of a higher or if not as high high as plain as the king himself, um, and during this sort of the politics of the Renaissance, when we start to see this sort of centralization of power, um, and particularly through the new monarchs, we're going to see a curb of the the power and influence of these uh, aristocracies. Um, your book mentions that many of these, according you know, seem to be acting according to Machiavelli's principles. The portion that you read, though, you got to look at, and you have to remember that Machiavelli is writing and publishing. After a good portion of the new monarchs are actually finished ruling, um, he looks at their new monarchs and suggests to Lorenzo de Medici or Medici to actually conquer Italy and make sure Italy is under one central authority. Uh, but he is looking at these new monarchs in that regard. Um, the new monarchs are Louis the Eleventh, Henry the Seventh, and Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. Those are the major ones. Um, you could argue. Uh, there's a few other ones, but that's the ones that your books are really pointing out. So we'll go with those. Um, it's really going to be kingship and royal authority as national purpose, and that's going to be a huge sense of this. The kingship is your sense of nationalism, um, and they're also these new monarchs are really going to claim. This is important uh, that the monarchy is the one institution that can actually link that can actually link all classes and peoples within a certain territorial bounds. So imagine now that the monarchy is saying that we are the only institution across the land that can actually unite and link all of the people living within a certain land or a certain, um, yeah, a certain land. Uh, and that's huge because it's no longer the church now. The monarchies are saying that this, the kingship, is the only thing that links people. It's no longer the church. Um, that's not necessarily to say the church is not in place, but Emphasize these guys are also going to emphasize royal power um, and sovereignty, and really insist and respect the loyalty of all of their subjects. Um, again, this idea that they're going to try and centralize their power and make sure that all their subjects are really within their own focus. And the last thing I'll mention with this is that you know this isn't entirely a new. This is not entirely new by any means. It has its roots inside of the uh, inside of the Middle Ages. Um, it is just during this time period that we really start to see the the more centralizing force. Uh, of these new monarchs, really bringing about the ideas that we'll get into later on, which are dealing with absolutism and constitutionalism. Those are where, that's where this is where we start to see those ideas being planted. Um, so let's actually talk a little bit about these new monarchs. Let's start with, first off with France. Um, in France, there's you know this is where you could argue that Charles VII really is a new monarch, but uh, a lot of people would argue that he really just sets the stage for Louis X. But well, we'll talk a little bit about Charles the Seventh here. Um, really is going to usher in a new age of recovery and end a civil war. Uh, he is basically going to stop a civil war inside of inside of France and really put a quell, put a stoppage to the violence that we see inside of France. Um, particularly, he's going to expel the English, which is always a good thing to do if you're a French ruler if the English are on your lands. Just sort of kick them out, and that is during the French, or I'm sorry, the Hundred Years' War. Um, he's going to reorganize this royal council. And really what he does inside of that, re- and the way he reorganizes that he gives a lot more power to the middle class of France. And that's important because it is no longer the aristocracy controlling France. It's going to be the middle class. And the Royal Council he's really going to give a lot of power to in general about how to actually deal and handle the problems of France. Um, but again, those people on the Royal Council are middle class. We'll see that as a theme as we, as we deal with the rest of the new monarchs. Uh, he's also going to strengthen the royal finances through very through two basic means. He's going to strengthen it through the gabelle and the tally, which is uh, the gabelle is a tax on salt and tally is a tax on land. And these are really going to be the income of the French crown until the Revolution of 1789. Um, you'll see the tax on salt when we get into Tale of Two Cities. Um, the French, the common people of France. Our, our France are really going to start to resent the tax on salt. They start to view it as a tax on basically being alive, uh, which we'll get into m- more. But this is where that starts. The, Charles the Seventh really puts the tax on salt and also the tax on land into good use, um, and he really is going to uh, use a part of that anyway to sort of reform the justice system and remodel the army, which we'll talk about here in a bit as well. Um, one of the major things that Charles VII is going to do is he's going to make the church subject to the state. And this is hugely important. So if you remember this, that, that'd that be great. Now, this is through the Pragmatic Sanction of borges in 1438. borges sorry. Pragmatic Sanction of Bjorges, Um 1438. And this really is that Charles VII is going to say that the superiority... Or the, he's going to state basically, that the General Council, or that a General Council has superiority over the papacy um, and basically give the French crown the control uh, of appointment of bishops and also deprive Rome or the papacy of basically ecclesiastical revenues which is basically the the, the dues owed by priests in their first year of actually practicing um, So imagine now that through this pragmatic extension of voyages in 1438 that the French Crown actually has control over the church, Uh, not the church as a whole. It doesn't have control control by any means of the pope, or the papacy, or the church as a whole. But it has control over the church inside of French lands Um, through that appointment of through those appointments of bishops. They really do control who gets who gets in place and who gets into power. Um, Think about how that manages to consolidate and secure French power. Because remember. Religion is still the major institution of the day, and the Catholic Church is still the major institution of the day, but now you have a French king saying, these are the people that need to be in power, because I, the French king, have said so. Um, this, is, this is a major, major component of the centralization of power. Um, this, by the way, this pragmatic extension of Burgess in 1438, is going to be um, basically remanded and changed in 1516, so from 1438 to 1516, the French church officials and the, thus the most of the French churches are not giving any money to the papacy. That's a long time for a, the you know the most the, the most Catholic country in Western Europe to not actually give money to the papacy. Um, but in 1516, in the Concordant of Bologna, Francis uh, Francis. Francis I, who is at this point in time king of France, and Pope Leo X is going to basically reach an agreement uh, that will end the pragmatic sanction of Burgess, Um And it basically said that the council is not in control of the papacy, and the Pope could collect the first year income, but in regard, in, in respect to that, the Pope still had to recognize the French right to select bishops and abbots. So, this concordant of Bologna in 1516, which we'll talk a little bit more later on, um, is important because it is is basically the Pope saying, all right, fine, you can have control of the bishops and the abbots and the appointment of these people, but you can't necessarily dictate what the papacy is going to do inside of France, and you can't prevent us from getting money that we need oh so desperately. Um, and that's very important as well. Uh, all of this, it paves the way for Louis X, who is going to rule... Um, before, France, the, before Francis the first and after obviously Charles VII um, from 1461 to 1483 Louis XI is basically going to expand the French state and really lay the foundations of later French absolutism and this is why he's considered a new monarch, you can see him on the right here he's, he's also considered the Spider King and there's some interesting um, ideas as to how he actually came to power uh, he's just really a rather interesting character um, inside of inside of European history, but really what he 's going to do is to prompt the new he 's going to really um, prompt new industries inside of france and he 's going to use tax money to stabilize and increase the army um, some of the industries he 's going to come in is he 's going to claim or he 's going to really want uh, he 's going to use basically industries such as silk weaving um, and really try and he really sees money as a solution to the problems that he is having with the nobles, and so he uses the industries like silk weaving and everything else, as far as uh, that may go, uh, to actually set up his own sort of power inside of this. Uh, and then he's going to use this new—he's going to use this money to actually um, stop the aristocracy influence by building a, a larger army, so that he can actually uh, control the urban areas and cut down on urban independence uh... moving on to england now (laughs) Um, feudal lords up to this you know in england feudal lords are really controlling the royal council and parliament in the fifteenth century and this basically means that the fact that parliament is the control of the purse strings inside of england makes the king subject to parliament and that'll become huge that'll become important later on Um, first thing we want to mention here is the war of the roses 1455 notice the date and look at the date of the hundred year wars to figure out why that's important um, but 1455 to 1471, the Hundred Years War, this is right after England has finished fighting the Hundred Years War. So now they have fought this o- expensive overseas war, and you're going to get these two houses um, of York and Lancaster basically fighting to see who is going to get control of the actual um, English crown. And you can see York's uh, white rose on the upper left, here and Lancaster's on uh, red rose on the, on the right hand side. Um, what we actually recognize is the fact that you know what you need to remember is that this War of the Roses is really going to hurt trade, our agriculture, and domestic industry, um, and people are going to really want to have some sort of stability if they possibly can, as to um, what actually you know is happening inside of England. Um, after the War of the Roses, or you know during the War of the Roses, you're going to see the rise of Edward the Fourth, um, and also then later on Henry the Seventh of England. Uh, Edward IV is really going to reduce the reliance of parliament um, for funds, and the way he's going to do that, and the way that Henry, the the Tudor dynasty that you can see the rose for on the bottom there, is actually going to do that, is He's really going to conduct foreign policy with uh, diplomacy as opposed to expensive wars. Um, And so if you don't have any massive wars overseas, you really don't need all that much money. And so Henry IV and Edward VII and the rest of the Tudor dynasty after Henry VII is really going to use diplomacy to help reduce the cost of actually maintaining an army. And this is going to cut out the aristocracy and reduce the reliance on Parliament because you no longer need to go to Parliament and ask for more money. Instead, what you can do is just not necessarily need the money to actually have the troops in a foreign land. Remember, waging war costs a lot of money. Um, Speaking of Henry VII, he's going to manipulate Parliament and thus the aristocracy in the way that I just described. Um, And one of the major ways he's going to do that is he's going to establish the Royal Council and this really is basically governed at, basically governed at a national level. Um, there 's very few nobility inside of this. He surrounds himself by members of the lesser land owning and uh, lesser land owning basically middle class. These people are going to be educated in law. Um, the nobility inside of this is not going to be in place again, it is a national sort of body that is surrounded that the king puts in place to help him govern the land. Um, You'll notice that the Royal Council in England is very similar to the Royal Council in France, which is also very similar to the Royal Council in Spain. These new monarchs recognize the idea that they need to undercut the power of the aristocracy and establish their own sort of control by creating royal councils or creating a governing body that is around them um, of the, the, the mid to lower classes. This Royal Council inside of England is really going to be an executive, legislative, and judicial branch. Um, and one of the ways that you can see as they sort of, you know, they're going to get international recognition for the Tudor dynasty, this Royal Council, is by basically, um, in 1501, they they give Henry's son, Arthur, to uh, get, get married to Catherine of Aragon um, in 1501, and that's going to be important because Catherine of Aragon, uh, you should remember, or you should know, will actually be um, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, so we are starting to see some sort of connections between the royal houses in Europe and remember that's going to be a theme throughout the rest of the year. The Royal Council and then also the Court of the Star Chamber, which is basically a judicial offsuit of that. Um, this Court of the Star Chamber is a rather interesting sort of uh, aspect inside of English history and the major thing to remember about this is that it's going to run directly the, the practices and policies of the Court of the Star Chamber. It's really going to run directly counter to the English common law precedents, um, but it's going to reduce the aristocracy troublemaking. So a lot of people aren't going to care that much that the court of the Star Chamber is really um, not all that fair by any means. You know, if you remember reading this, it's going to be like the accused are not allowed to see the evidence against them. Their sessions are always going to be held in secret. Uh, torture can be applied if they needed to get some sort of confession. There's no juries in place. All of these things are directly counter to the English common law precedents. Now, remember, this is not necessarily English law. It's just precedence, the precedents established by previous sort of court cases that have come into place. Um, but again, the aristocracy troublemaking is reduced, and so people are willing to sort of go along with the flow. Henry Seventh is also going to win support of the upper middle class. By promoting their interest in money, trade, and stability, um, very few, very few upper noble, upper middle class people, even in today's society, are going to want unstable wars and unstable. Um, basically, because unst- instability actually does not allow for trade to actually take place, and so the middle class is really always going to support some sort of stability to establish. Um, so you're going to see little objection to the methods because it offers stability. And the way that they do this, one of the ways they use, do this is use justices of the peace, which basically are um, their local eyes and ears. Um, and uh, they, the justices of the peace actually apprehend and punish criminals. They enforce parliamentary statutes, fix wages and prices, maintain proper standards of weights and measures, and even check up on moral behavior from time to time. Um, so that is England during this rise of the new monarchs, particularly dealing with uh, the rule of Henry VII. So let's move on. And one thing to remember, actually before we move on, the one thing to remember about Henry VII is that it is the start of the Tudor dynasty. Um, and that is important because the Tudor dynasty will take us uh, all the way up until the glorious restoration of James. Um, so bear that in mind. The Tudor dynasty is going to be uh, the ruling house of England for the next few hundred years. Um, by the way, Elizabeth, the, the the queen that you guys might remember, is part of the Tudor dynasty. Henry VIII, the guy you guys might remember, is part of the Tudor dynasty. You can actually find a uh, uh, a genealogy chart on Moodle as well, as far in trying to get these so that you can try and get these the, the Tudor dynasty actually down. But moving on to Spain, um, the first thing, the Ferdinand and Isabella. Ah, Ferdinand and Isabella, the last major step in the unification the Christianization of spain um, this this sort of marriage is not going to be uh, the the marriage itself was not going to justify or signify the end uh, or, or basically a massive unification process. Um, the marriage is really just the union of two royal houses and not necessarily two different people um, it's Spain itself is going to be basically. A loose confederation of states until 1700, each with a separate parliament and laws. Um, by the way, I, I hope you guys have caught this: that Ferdinand is um, uh, Ferdinand is of Aragon, and uh, Isabella is Castile. And so, these are the two major parties inside of um, inside of the Iberian Peninsula. And so, these two unions are really just a political household being unified. Um, these uh, hermandades are otherwise known as brotherhoods, and one of the ways that they're going to be able to maintain, that Ferdinand and Isabella are actually going to maintain and administer some sort of justice, is really going to give these brotherhoods the authority to act as local police. Um, these brotherhoods are so effective that they're actually going to be disbanded in or 1498, um, and that's important to remember because uh, their, their judicial tribunals are... Um, Very, very violent. They are savage um, and they are very, very effective. Um, The restructure, Ferdinand and Isabella are also going to restructure the royal council to curb aristocratic power. power. Um, This is uh, obviously a method or a common theme that you should see now that they're going to establish some sort of royal council to curb, that most of these new monarchs are actually going to establish a royal council to curb some sort of. Um, aristocratic power Uh, this again is the Ferdinand and Isabella Royal Council is going to be made up of middle class men trained in Roman law they're going to be given executive, judicial and legislative powers um, and they're going to also supervise the local authorities the church is going to play a major role inside of the Spanish um, the, the Spanish new monarchs as well there's an alliance with Pope Alexander VI uh, which basically gives the Spanish the right to appoint bishops in Spain, um, which basically is the establishment of a national church. Um, and this is going to be important because the national church is going to become a tool used in the Reconquista. Um, the Reconquista is going to be completed in in fourteen ninety two, um, and the Reconquista really is just a, a is a, the reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula, as many have claimed. Um, as you uh, as you should remember. Most of the Iberian Peninsula is going to be taken over by the by the Muslim uh, by members of the (coughs) sorry by mostly Arabs um, and there's going to be a large portion of people there's going to be a large portion of Muslims still living in the southern part of the Iberian Peninsula, particularly in Granada. and so this reconquista is really in the mostly in the south into in hopes of driving out the Arabs out of the Iberian Peninsula, as it says um, this really is the reconquista really is the represents sort of the end of uh, any kind of diversification inside of Spain up to that point, Spain really is the most diversified state or diversified um, region inside of all of Europe. Also dealing, uh, also because there. Not only are the uh, the Muslims in there as well, but not only are the not only is the Muslim faith strong in Spain, but also we have Jews um, that are also a prominent member in Spanish society. And you should remember um, how Jews are actually felt and viewed on inside of Spanish society. Remember that they are the the Jewish faith itself is um, the Jewish people in most of the sections sections of the society are moneylenders, their doctors, um, basically there's going to start to, people are going to start to see a resentment of Jewish influence and wealth. And that's where you're going to start to see a lot of the sort of the racism that comes out of the, um, reconquista, uh, which is again, to drive out the Moors inside of Spain, but also to establish and drive out as many Jews as possible as well. um, Converted Jews, uh, these conversos are basically converted Jews but still disliked and distrusted out of fear of loss of public office. This really is just an unjustified fear. Um, you know, 40% of the, you know, some historians claim and your book claims that 40% of the Jews are forced to convert or killed. Um, the crown recognizes the fact that they cannot protect the Jewish class because they will lose public support. This comes back to the idea again of Caesar Borgia um, that is important as well, that this is, uh, you know, this is the idea of Caesar Borgia, or not Caesar Borgia, but Machiavelli, where um, you go with the flow and you take fortune as you you don't go with the flow and you take fortune by the horns and you drag it to where you want it to go. Uh, this is a good example of that. Um, you know, these the, these conversos are really uh, a major component of Jewish culture and Jewish society. They are the lending they are the lending merchants. They are the officials, the public officials. Um, they are doctors, uh, but all in all, you're going to see that the the aristocracy is going to really resent the financial dependence on the Jews. Uh, the poor are going to hate the, the tax collectors of the Jews, and the churchmen are really going to doubt the sincerity of the conversion uh, tactics of these new Christians as well. Uh, all of this is really going to lead to a sort of... Um, new racism uh, that we're going to see develop and it's like your book says it's not going to be based on what they did but on what they were as human beings and this is important because now this is this is really going to start to see a a sort of definitive racism here Um, and one of the ways that Ferdinand and Isabella are going to use uh, and Try and drive out the Jews is through the revival of the Inquisition, and that's going to happen in September 29th, or sorry, September 28th, 1480. Um, The Inquisition really, as they claim it, is to search out and punish converts from Judaism who has transgressed against Christianity by secretly adhering to Jewish beliefs and performing rites of the Jews. Uh, This really is to try and drive out as many Jews as possible. and they're going to use all sorts of methods uh, to hopefully influence and force Jews out of the country. Um, this all comes back down to this idea that people are afraid that the Jewish population is going to lose public office and therefore uh, the nationalistic sentiment that we start to see a little bit forming in Spain will be crushed as well. Uh, and so people are worried that it, you know, it's a grave threat, that these, that these new Christians are really a grave threat uh, to national unity. The Inquisition is kind of an uh, is kind of an interesting sort of quirk in history, tool. you will. Um, It really does mean any judicial inquiry conducted with ruthless severity. Um, so, you know, I mean, you all should know at least some aspects of the Inquisition. This is not a fun place to be by any means. Um, it is it is torture uh, to a T. Um, this, by the way, the Inquisition is also where we develop. Which is the first place we see the use of waterboarding, which is still prominent in our society, but the Inquisition is going to be the first place that we actually see it used on a larger scale um, to try and get people to either confess to their sins of being Jewish, uh, you know, again, sins of being Jewish, or um, to actually, you know, uh, convert and actually mean it this time. One of the last things I'll mention about Ferdinand and Isabella and the actually in Spain is that they actually are going to use this idea of marriage to strengthen and s- secure their own base. Um, this is really going to be that they're going to marry their second daughter, Joanna Harris of the Castile, to the Archduke of Philip. Um, and through this, you're going to start to see the development of the uh, the Holy Roman, not the the development of Charles... Philip and Joanna's son, Charles V, is really going to be a major key player in the... Um, the upcoming Thirty Years' War and other areas of European history. So bear that in mind, that Ferdinand and Isabella really used the power and and the prestige of marriage to actually influence and create secure structures for themselves. So, last thing we'll look at here is the essential questions. What are the political, social, economic, and intellectual foundations of modern Europe? How do those forces interact? Um, Again, we should be able to look at this and say, this is the establishment of... um, monarchies. This is the establishment of strong centralized governments, and this is again, which again leads to the idea of, of strong nationalism. Um, you know, the, the political, social, economic, and intellectual foundations, political are obviously strong Social are strong centralizing governments. Social is uh, the contrast and the conflict between the, the, the monarchy and the aristocracy. Economic is a want of stability so that you can actually trade. Intellectual foundations are um, the idea that In that, if you influence a certain group of people, um, uh, you know, the intellectual foundations would actually be this idea that Roman law is used to create and sustain society. Um, How are nation states formed and developed, and how do they regard the individual? Uh, The most important part of that is the last part of that individual question. You can look at examples like the Jews in Spain um, and other members of. Uh, Western Europe and how they actually do regard the individual, these new monarchs themselves are going to regard the middle class as much more important than the aristocracy um, and that'll be important and how do art and literature of the time express its fundamental values you can see that through the works of Thomas More, through Erasmus, um, through the Northern Renaissance writers and painters who view Christianity as a means of reforming society Um, and what are the preoccupations and assumptions of any age how do those express themselves in political, social, and economic movements? Preoccupations and assumptions of any age, again, that comes back to a really good concept of um, the, the Jewish population inside of Spain, but also the preoccupations of the church being more important than the state, um, and express themselves in political and social and economic movements, such as in France, where the church itself is forced to become subject to the state, um, that's important because it's a shift in the actual uh, the way society actually views the church. Um, so that would be the McKay Hill and Butler chapter thirteen sections five and six. And uh, thank you for your time, and I hope to see you again.